Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Lindsay Mazurik, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Oregon. Mazurik is a specialist in the ancient history of the Mediterranean region. Her research focuses on concepts of ethnicity, religious identity, and foreignness from a material culture perspective. She is a co-director of the Mediterranean Connectivity Project, a digital humanities initiative. Mazurik is a, a recipient of a 2019-20 Oregon Humanities Center Faculty Research Fellowship. During her research term, she aims to complete her book manuscript, Embodying Isis, Egyptian Religion and the Negotiation of Greekness in the Second Century CE. Mazurik joined the UO faculty in fall of 2018. Thanks, Lindsay, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. So what sparked your interest in ancient history, and then what made you decide that you were going to become an academic to pursue it? Well, I have one of those sort of very standard freshman hand brochure uh, stories. I was going to be a political science major at UC Berkeley, and I signed up to take a Greek civ class with uh, Mark Griffith at UC Berkeley, and he just really inspired me, really made me very interested and very excited about the material. Um, and I just kept going and it really, it really stuck in a way that no other subject uh, has ever since. Uh, I ultimately decided to become an academic after going on my first, it was an archeological dig, but my first ceramic research project at the archeological site of Nemea. And that was directed by Kim Shelton, who would ultimately become my undergraduate research mentor, um, oversee my thesis, and really help me get into grad school. And it was the materiality of the object, the sense that you could really touch something and have this connection with such a deep part of the past that really got me excited and has kept me going all these years. So you've just answered my second question, <laughs> which was a question about uh, material culture. But let me ask you this. Why, why the ancient Mediterranean? Why is that the area that you wanted to focus on? I think the ancient Mediterranean's history has been told in a very narrow sense. You read these books about the Peloponnesian War or Augustus, and it gives you this sense that there are only two places that matter and that they don't talk to anybody else. But when you're on the ground and you're looking at the objects themselves, it's a very different story. You really see that there are people coming from all over. It's a very connected place. Uh, it's a very intensively globalized place, I, I would argue. And I really thought that that needed to be changed, that there needed to be a different story told about this world so that we can see that there is no time period in which people aren't migrating. There is no time period in which people aren't reckoning with, with cross-cultural interactions. And I think that really gives us a really different perspective on those issues today. So that obviously perfectly leads into your book <laughs> project. So, so um, you've already explained, you know, sort of the, the um, scholarly problem mm -hmm. that you're trying to address. Yes. So can you give us a kind of quickie overview of the way that your book addresses that problem? Sure. So I'm looking at Egyptian religion in Greece, uh, and I tried to limit it to the period in which Greece is part of the Roman Empire. There's this really fascinating moment in the end of the fourth century BCE, beginning of the third century BCE, where we have this exodus of migrants. There are all these, um, I think about a handful, I can fully confidently identify, that these people from Egypt that come up to Greece and start founding this cult. And that's really cool, really interesting. But what's also interesting is then, uh, by previously about a generation later, there's very few people that we can say are actually Egyptian that are participating in these cults. So it becomes like a Greek phenomenon. 
and you see people you know, worshiping ISIS, worshiping Anubis. Um, we think that they're doing some pretty unusual rites, wearing special clothing. Um, I've just found a, a law in which somebody is not allowed to wear brightly colored clothing or be drunk inside a sanctuary. Mm. So they, they have a very clear sense of this. And this gets complicated again under the Roman Empire because this is a period in which um, people who work on literary history have noticed there's a real interest in reviving the classical past to, to reclaim the greatness of Greece at a time period where they're, they're colonized. And I think that this Egyptian religion sort of presents a really interesting complicating nuance to that because what does it mean for an Egyptian, a, a Greek person who's living in this colonized space to pick up this other element of the foreign? So for me, what I'm looking at is uh, perhaps an opportunity for these people to create more cosmopolitan, more nuanced, and more, contempt more sort of presently oriented ways to think of themselves, think of what it means to be Greek, and to engage with the rest of the Roman Mediterranean. So, um, say a little bit about how they went, uh, I mean, how these Greeks started to employ these Egyptian gods and these Egyptian religious practices and these objects. What did they, how do they do it? They're very popular, first of all. Uh, pretty much every city in Greece has a sanctuary to the Egyptian gods, mm. um, probably by the end of the first century BC. And then there's a real, you know, growth period, sort of the height of this is the second century CE, which is why I've picked this period to focus on in my book. Um, they're building sanctuaries um, that have little tiny bits of eclectic Egyptianness in them. Um, very few Egyptian imports, actually, which is surprising to me. I, I was expecting to find a lot more because that's what you see in Italy, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so what they seem to like to do instead is pick uh, an Egyptian uh, icon or, or subject, so Isis, for example, and then carve her in a Greek material and in a Greek style. So Isis ends up looking a lot like, say, a statue of Aphrodite or yeah. Demeter. Um, so it's a really interesting way in which they're, they're retelling the Isis story to locate her in Greece, but also preserve some sort of connection to Egypt. So there's a real, there's a real cultural tension there that I think is quite productive. So what's the, uh, I mean, you, you started to speak to this. Why would, what's the benefit for the Greeks in like doing this Egyptian thing? Why, what, what's the, why? This um, is a question I get asked a lot and it's one I don't have a very good answer to, unfortunately. Um, one possibility is that there is a more defined theology of what happens to you after you die in Egyptian uh, religion uh, than there is in Greek religion, but that's not, may not be the whole thing. Uh, if we look at it from a migration perspective, um, we can actually trace a lot of people who are migrants coming to cosmopolitan port centers joining and joining in quite intensive ways. They join smaller groups, uh, priesthoods. So it could be a mechanism of integration. And then it also seems that um, particularly Italian migrants are going to one place and then this island, um, the island of Delos, there seems to be a mass exodus of people after two pretty serious um, military invasions. One's pirates, one's uh, Mithridates IV, who's this king of Pontus with this really great lion hat. Um, so these Italians then leave and their exodus seems to be that they're going to places where there are already other Italian migrant communities. And one of the places where we can really trace them is also that they're rejoining these existing um, migrant communities in the ISIS um, cults. And they're also introducing their own practices. So it could be also a, a really interesting way to see how migration history is playing out. Hmm. And wh why, why is ISIS one why is Isis a goddess that attracts particular attention among these Greeks? There's a real shift in Egyptian religion um, under the, the Ptolemies, who are a Greek dynasty that takes over um, at the, sort of the middle of the fourth century BCE. 
Um, so in the wake of Alexander the Great, uh, one of his generals, Ptolemy, takes over, um, and he's using a lot of the uh, trappings of the pharaoh, um, you know, claiming that he's a god, for example, mm -hmm. a great way to, to get a whole bunch of people to sign on to your new rule. Mm -hmm. And in this period, we also see sort of a collapsing of the Egyptian pantheon. This is a, a major oversimplification, but there are more and more sort of female deities being collapsed into Isis, and eventually the, uh, the queen, um, so, the Berenikes, the Arsinoes, they start assimilating themselves to Isis as sort of part of this theology of the pharaohhood. Mm -hmm. So part of that seems to be why Isis is the prominent deity at this point. And actually in the first phases, she's not the, the prominent deity. There's a god that seems to arise during the Ptolemaic period. His name's Serapis, he's sort of, his origins are contested, uh, but he's her consort. He seems a little bit more popular, but sort of by the end of, um, the second century BCE, you really start to see Isis as the predominant figure. Um, and she really becomes the, the focal point for most communities in Greece. And um, tell, tell us a little bit about how, they, how figures like Isis get represented in this material culture that you study. What do they look like? What's important about them, the way they, the, the way they appear? I think that what's really important about the way that they appear is that, that basically it's a new deity and Greek art is very retrospective and it's very repetitive. Innovation is not really valued, which is mm -hmm. a very difficult for many people today to understand that mm -hmm. art is not supposed to be new. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to conform. Mm -hmm. And so this is a point where they have to make something new and they, they more or less have three choices, right? They can uh, choose to import Egyptian objects that already represent Isis. They can choose to uh, try to imitate uh, those Egyptian objects in um, like local materials, or they can just kind of make Isis look very Greek, what scholars have called the interpretatio graica, the, the Greek interpretation. Mm -hmm. And they overwhelmingly prefer that last option. Mm -hmm. So I can only, there's only really a couple places where you see sort of an Egyptian looking Isis. And more often than not, it's an a, a adaptation of existing types. And so I think that that has really big cultural significations. And when you look at the text as well, you see a really similar impulse to try and make Isis a Greek goddess to claim that she's part of the Olympic pantheon, that she's been in Greece forever, that she's working with Hermes to invent writing, for example, um, and to claim that she has some special connection to Greece. And that that impulse, I think, is is ethnically motivated. Say a little bit more about that. Well, part of what I'm really interested in is this period is a place where we can tell that, at least among elite uh, people living in, in Athens, um, there's a real concern about what it means to be Greek. There's a lot of gatekeeping around who is a Greek. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of concern about performing Greekness properly. So speaking with the proper dialect, mm -hmm. um, d demonstrating that you really know your Plato, you know your Aristotle, um, and you know your Demosthenes. And this, this, there's a real concern around that. And for people to then at the same time, and some of the same people in fact, turn around and really embrace Egyptian religion suggests that there's there's got to be a connection with there for me, and so for me, I think that that's part of creating what's maybe a minority view of Greekness, one that's less focused on classicizing, but more interested in creating a trans-Mediterranean sort of more cosmopolitan and global form of Greekness. And this, in your account, I mean that that you focus on the period when Greece is colonized mm -hmm. by the Romans. Yes. That, for, in your account, th there's a relationship between that that desire and this. S status of colonized 
uh, colonized nation. I absolutely think that's true. Uh, a lot of the tension surrounding that gatekeeping of Greekness is definitely coming about as a result of Roman power. So you start to see people like um, the, the travel writer Pausanias going around and writing a catalog of all the great sanctuaries in Greece and omitting many of the Roman or the later dedications so we can highlight the great ones. Mm -hmm. um, you see people writing these orations on like the true um, the true authentic Athens and how uh, the people who live in Athens today are, are you know, the, the inheritors of this tradition. Um, you see people um, sort of trying to really bring that out. And I, th I think that's coming, I think most scholars would agree that's coming out of a lot of feelings about Roman power. Mm -hmm. But it, Roman power is also what's enabling the types of mobility that are at the very core of this cult. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So tell us a little bit about what, what your research looks like? What do you, I mean, what do you literally, how do you do this research? Uh, I spend a lot of time traveling. Uh, so I, I will be actually going to Rome uh, in just a little under a month and then from there to Greece to finish looking at some, some objects for this book um, funded by a low classical library foundation grant. So that will be most of my summer. So it's a lot of museum basements, a lot of uh, digging around in, in old records, trying to figure out what, where these things come from, how, what their archeological history is. Um, I also do a lot of literary research, so um, reading a lot of ancient sort of texts from a wide variety of disciplines. And I'm really interested as well in sort of cultural theory and anthropological theory, and that's been a big part of my research as well, is thinking through um, some of the, the more conceptual aspects of this work. We, we're missing so much. Mm -hmm. We always have to deal with these huge gaps in our, in our evidence, and I think critical theory is a really good way for us to to try to sort of bridge those gaps in ways that are productive, but still true to the material. So you've started to answer my next question, which is, you know, your work is very interdisciplinary, yes. and you've just described it, it's even more interdisciplinary than I realized. You started to say why that's a crucial aspect of what you do. Say a little bit more about that. I think that also, if we just embed ourselves in um, ancient texts and take them at their word, We'll get a very biased perspective. We'll get a we'll we'll actually default to that that perspective I was talking about earlier, where there's really you know two poles and those are the only things that matter, um, with some notable exceptions. So I think that we, by taking sort of a, a more spaced out view, looking at this from a lot of different vantage points and looking to other disciplines to get ideas about the types of questions we can ask of our evidence, mm -hmm. you can really start to see more interesting things. So for example, the study of ancient slavery uh, up until maybe about you know, the, the 80s, it was, it was pretty minimal and it was pretty top down, maybe not something that contemporary scholars of, of uh, modern slavery would find very good or mm -hmm. very helpful. Mm -hmm. But because we've been able to start opening up different questions, um, coming in our evidence from um, methods that are put forth by feminist studies or anthropology or history or even comparative work and archeology, span we've been able to really vivify that research and think about um, not only the ideas of slavery, but the lives of enslaved people in really new and productive ways. It's just a different discipline than it was 40 years ago, and I think it's a much better one. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So one of the things that you've mentioned is crucial to your work and to the conception of your work is that the Mediterranean was connected in a lot of ways that have uh, hitherto been inadequately appreciated. Mm -hmm. So you also are this co-director of the Mediterranean Connectivity Project, which mm -hmm. is this significant digital humanities project. So tell us a little bit about that. What's, what's, wh why is that something you do? Why is that an important thing to do? 
That, so that comes out of an earlier project. My, it, this all really comes back to globalization and mobility for me. Mm-hmm. Those are sort of the, the core driving issues that keep me interested. In uh, 2016, I, I worked with my collaborator, uh, Dr. Ken Cannon, at uh, University of Southern California. And we published this, uh, this edited volume on uh, postmodern approaches to Burdell. So breaking off the, the works of Fernand Burdell, who's one of these early Annalise scholars who sort of promotes this very interconnected, this um, landscape-oriented and uh, less sort of like chronologically events-oriented version of history towards a more, almost a more globalized version of the Mediterranean. And so we, we published that book and we realized that there are basically two ways that you can talk about this in, in sort of our modern heuristics. You can do tiny case studies that may be only valid for that one particular spot you've looked at in a very particular time period. Or you can do these big meta-narratives, theoretical, sort of generalized flows discussions. And there's not really any way to relate the two well. So we were really interested in like, what is that middle scale? What is, what is that, that place in between the theoretical and the highly, the highly you know, specific? And so we started looking at this site called Ostiantica, which is Rome's main port city in the Mediter- in, throughout most of the empire. Um, and it again has its sort of its high point in the second century CE and sort of declines in prominence from there. But uh, what's really exciting about for us about Ostia is one, it's really well preserved, so you can go and there's still you know stories of buildings preserved. Um, and we're particularly interested in a type of object called an inscription. So what an inscription is is it's usually a piece of marble that has some sort of text written on it, um, and of course that survives very well. The Romans are really into these. Actually, most people mm. in the Greek and Roman world are very into inscriptions. Um, there's a scholar named Ramsey McMurray who's written a whole you know, body of work on this called the epigraphic habit. Mm. So they'll record all kinds of things on there. Um, honors, so if you've you know, been honored for winning something or you know, doing a good job in a political office, you'll get an inscription or a statue. Um, they use this to record actually calendars. They use this to record um, in some cases, even sort of accounts. So we have you know, some accounts on like what free bread was given to firemen in very particular um, months. So we thought this was a really good corpus from which we can mine a lot of data. So what we're trying to do there, and now we've expanded into Greece, um, is really think about you know, who's moving around, why are people moving around, and what kind of networks are they moving around once they get to these places? Okay, so that's the, that's the project. Mm-hmm. So you use these digital tools. Yes. It's a digital humanities project. So tell us about that. What are these tools? What are these tools and what do they allow you to do? What do they allow mm-hmm. you to show? So we've been kind of working on two different levels. Uh, the first is an abstract social network analysis. And this is, we've been using a software called Gephi. And Gephi um, sort of takes together and looks at patterns and clusterings in your, in your data set. And for us, since most of our clusterings are around uh, religion and family, we're able to sort of see some connections that are going not just one degree out, but two or three degrees out. And think and this sort of showing us a little bit of you know where are people embedding themselves and what networks are active, you know, through the long term. The other thing that we're interested in is mapping. Because a lot of these inscriptions, their their precise find spot is not particularly well known. So we think that if we actually look at where these texts are found, that will add a new spatial dimension. So not only do we know, you know, the people of Kai, who worship the goddess Kaibili, um, they're over here in their sanctuary, but we can also see where those people are throughout the, the city. And also then, as we move uh, into other regions, are they crossing boundaries? Do these uh, social networks look similar, different sites? And if there are differences, what do those look like? So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but both of these um, 
techniques that you're describing there are visualization techniques. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So why, what, why, why are visualization techniques beneficial? What do they, what do they do that write, written accounts can't do? So what we have a lot in um, classics in ancient history are, are compendia. This is a, a feature of the fact that Germans really love classics. Uh, there's, we always joke that if you can think of it, there's a German you know, dissertation on it. Um, so what we have are often these huge stacks of lists of all of these texts. And people have gone through and said, okay, well, there's a guy with this name who's similar to this name over here. Maybe they're related. Uh, but there's not been really any real conversations around, so, okay, so if we know that these two people know each other. You know, how do they know each other beyond just, you know, their, you know, relationships, like familial relationships. So looking at the other types of sort of secondary and tertiary relationships that impinge on all of us. Like, we can think of in our daily-to-day -day lives as people that, you know, it's not just that we directly work with someone or are related to someone. Those are not the only ways that, the only social ties that inform our actions. So we're trying to think about what some other um, things are that will really give us some more interesting ways to think about uh, social connectivity. Um, and then you've been doing these, you know, using these digital techniques. How have they informed your scholarship? I mean, your, 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 the other kind of scholarship that you do. Have they informed it? Have they In terms it? of the, the, the ISIS things? Yeah. I think that it, it, I was thinking about using it for the book. It didn't end up panning out in the way I wanted it to. I think what it's done for me is, is it's actually inspired me to think very differently about uh, social institutions. So I, I, one of the, the chapters I just finished writing is on uh, does it matter that you worship ISIS? Is being an ISIS devotee an identity in and of itself? Mm. And because I was thinking about the ways in which sort of social institutions act on people's lives, I was able to think about this in terms of, so if you are an ISIS devotee, how often are you interacting with the cult? Um, how visible is your membership? And I think I was able to put together a really interesting argument that says, yes, I do think that this is an identity because so much of your life is going to be ordered around obeying these rules, seeing your name put up in the sanctuary as members of different groups, um, dressing in particular ways, going through these very emotionally effective rituals, that, the, that these actual contacts are what makes you uh, an ISIS devotee and not why that becomes a really important part of your is life. Is it a large percentage of the Greek population at this time that's devoted to ISIS? It's really hard to know because mm -hmm. we actually do not know how many people live in Greece. Mm. Um, and so it's very difficult to say. There is sort of one number I can give you. So one thing that we see a lot of in Athens are, you know, basically grave markers, uh, these big sort of slabs where you have you know, sculptures of the people and their names on them. Um, and for the Roman period, 20% of the ones that we have are for an ISIS devotee. Hmm. So that would be like Catholics, hmm. more or less, in the US, if that's representative, which I actually cannot say that it is. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, though. Um, so has your work on the Digital Humanities Project impacted your teaching? It has, it has. I find that my students really respond well to particularly mapping activities. Mm -hmm. So um, sometimes I'll have them uh, use this database uh, from Stanford called Orbis, um, have them map out how they would travel around the Roman Empire and think about um, comparing that to modern day travel, so having them think about the stakes of travel in different ways. Um, I've had students do things like make their own Roman funerary monument and through visualization, visualization technology. A lot of them are much better at SketchUp than I am. Mm -hmm. 
And so by thinking about, you know, what are the, the things you want to put on a tomb in the Roman Empire, I think it really helps them sort of relate better to the material uh, in ways that just, writing a that just writing a paper doesn't really give them. And you just suggested that there's a way in which they've been able to, to show you things about these technique technologies that you didn't Every know? Every day. Every day. Uh, they are much better at it than I am. <laughs> That's good. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about your teaching. So tell us, um, Tell us about a class that you've been teaching or you've, you want to teach. Well, I'm actually teaching a class right now called uh, Ancient Immigration. Uh, I've taught it before, but uh, adapting it to, to UO. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've got a great group of kids in there. Um, and so we start off with thinking about, you know, what is migration? And we start off with a, mo a unit of modern things, so looking at the ways in which migration is valued and discussed in um, modern journalism. That's their first paper. Um, and then we actually put together a an edited volume at the end of the quarter where they write essays and put them together, edit them together into a volume, um, and then also put, in to put together a collaborative dictionary of key terms that we might use to study migration. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really fun about this class is that the study of, of ancient migration is so new that in some ways I'm asking them to think through what the study of migration should look like mm -hmm. and what it should be. Um, because those, those parameters haven't really been defined yet. I, th I think students find that really interesting to know that the, their ideas have a real stake in what's going to happen in, in scholarly research going forward. Yeah, I think that's yeah, the, the, such an important thing to, to help them understand. Um, you have another project that's on the horizon that you can say something about? I, I have a, f a few things sort of on, on the burners um, that are, I will get to, I'm excited to get to once the book's done. Uh, one is a study actually of personifications of uh, what were called like nationes or ethne. So the, the Romans have a very clear idea of different groups of people, different ethnic groups. They have very clear ideas um, that are expressed in texts, ethnographic texts, um, and they also express them through iconography. And I think that there's been a real um, focus on ones that are produced in Rome because that is where most of them are. But what's actually interesting is that there are also a lot of them that are put in the colonies, in the, in the provinces of the Roman Empire. So why would you de normally like depict yourself as racialized in this way? Mm. I'm really interested in tracing that out and seeing when these arrive and why they arrive and what particular context in which these people are going to create these galleries of, of ethnic personifications. Hmm. Fascinating. So we've just got a couple of minutes left. This is the last question. Um, what attracted you to the University of Oregon? I'm a native Californian, so I was very excited to come back uh, out here on the West Coast. And I was really inspired by uh, what I saw when I, when I came out to visit and, and met with my colleagues. Um, my colleagues in the history department are amazing. They're so committed to their teaching, so committed to, to pushing research in new areas and to doing it really well, doing it inclusively. And that was really important to me. I, I was really excited about the premise of coming out here and being part of this group. Well, that's a lovely place for us to end. We're excited that you're here. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This Thank afternoon. you. I've been speaking with Lindsay Mazurik, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Oregon. Mazurik is a recipient of a 2019-2020 Oregon Humanities Center Faculty Research Fellowship. During her research term, she aims to complete her book manuscript, Embodying ISIS, Egyptian Religion and the Negotiation of Greekness in the Second Century CE. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you.